So we'll start off, let me um, start off by saying who we are. My name is Liz Mellon. I'm an executive director with Duke Corporate Education and the chair of the editorial board of our journal Dialogue. I'm delighted to have um, East and West represented on the panel today. So starting with Anil Gupta, um, you know he's the Michael Lehman Chair of Strategy at the University of Maryland. And like Don, a prolific author, and his last, uh, his, some of his best known work is The Silk Road Rediscovered, Getting China and India Right, and that'll be certainly central to the debate this afternoon, and The Quest for Global Dominance. He explains to me that he talked to CEOs about, you know, the quest for global leadership, and they said, nah, dominance. Uh, so... Um, uh, Don Tapscott is um, the Chancellor of Trent University, a prolific author, um, and uh, amongst other books, uh, amongst his 15 books, has written The Digital Economy, um, and many of his predictions, he's just being asked to do another edition of that, that was 20 years ago, and he said it's very interesting rereading it and saying, oh, actually, some of this, uh, my predictions have come true, so we'll hear some more about those. Um, he's also founder and executive director of Global Solution Networks, looking at networked models for collaboration in government. So is there something beyond business and, in fact, beyond government? I'm going to kick us off with some factoids, um, some research, just to get our heads into the room. Then I'm going to ask first Anil and then Don to speak. Um, I may throw them a couple of questions, but I'm going to throw it open pretty fast to the room. So the first thing we'll talk about is is global inequity, uh, inequality a problem, and is capitalism a source of the problem or a, a potential solution to the problem? And at the end, we'll say, well, what should we be doing about it next? So the, um, the facts. So we've all seen Ban Ki-moon's report, the UN report that's come out. The Millennium Project, the Millennium Project has been successful in halving abject poverty in the world, and that means people who live on $1.25 a day. But he, Pope Francis, and President Obama, among others, all declare that inequality is the biggest issue uh, of our age. A recent Legatum poll said that 55% um, of Americans and every other of one of the seven other countries had a bigger percentage of, of that than that, believe that the poor get poorer and the rich get richer in capitalist economies. Less than half of the population asked, including the US, believe that free enterprise is better at lifting people out of, out of poverty. So capitalism got a very, very bad name at the moment. And 70% of people believe that big business has bought, cheated, or polluted its way to success. On, in terms of global wealth, Credit Suisse uh, 2015 report just came out. The bottom half of the world population own less than 1% of the world's wealth. Less than 1%. The top 1% own half of the total household wealth. And just so we get that 1%, because I've seen so many comments about that 1%, to be in that 1% that owns half of the global wealth, you need to have $759,000 in total assets. I suspect that most people in the, this room are in that notorious 1%. So with that as the backdrop, Anil, please can I ask you to kick us off with some opening thoughts. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Les. 
So what I'll do is uh, just uh, share my perspective on the phenomenon of inequality and some thoughts about what are the factors uh, that contribute to it or perhaps uh, some that alleviate it, but not uh, get into the question of, so what does one do about it? Maybe we can get into that tougher question in the discussion that takes place. But just in terms of the phenomenon, uh, and that is inequality becoming worse, uh, staying the same or getting better? In part, it depends on the level of aggregation uh, that one brings to the question, meaning that if we look across countries, uh, and given the rise of emerging economies in terms of economic development, and keeping in mind that 80% of the world's population lives in emerging economies, uh, and in terms of the, uh, the GDP growth rates, even after accounting for all the uh, effects of currency depreciations and so on, uh, that emerging economies are growing at two to three times the pace of the uh, rich economies. Mm -hmm. So at a global level, uh, if you look at, say, the bottom 20% of the population in China and India, uh, the gap between their uh, level of wealth and the bottom 20% uh, of, uh, say, in a country like the U.S., uh, that gap today, how does that compare with that gap of 20 years back? I think uh, that gap by every measure is less. Uh, so so at that level, uh, there is reason to believe uh, that, uh, you know, just embracing the logic of the market, embracing global integration, uh, at, a, at, at that level of on a cross-country basis, uh, it, uh, there is, uh, in fact, reduction in, in, in inequality. That said, if you look now at different levels of aggregation, which is within countries, and by within countries, I mean not just, say, within the U.S. or Germany, but within a China, within an India, the level of inequality today is clearly worse uh, than it was 20 years back. So we could say, yes, the rising tide is lifting all boats, but actually you know, some boats are being lifted far faster and far higher uh, than some other boats. Uh, if we look at the level of individual communities, uh, by communities I mean, for example, of course, in the rich world, you know, take San Francisco, uh, and you look at all of the, the protests that are taking place, uh, you know, the haves, you know, the, 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 the people who work for Google and Facebook and the like, and the buses uh, that take them uh, from where they live in SF and what's happening to rents, uh, and the people who can't afford, you know, because they're not working for the tech companies. But of course, the same phenomenon is taking place uh, in Bangalore. The same phenomenon is taking place in Shenzhen and in Shanghai. Uh, and so therefore, within communities, within countries, uh, there is uh, uh, growing inequality even among uh, the higher growth emerging economies. So that sort of level of aggregation. In terms of what's contributing to it, uh, the, so you know, if I think about, so what are, you know, from times gone by till today, uh, you know, there are basically five ways in which people accumulate wealth. Uh, historically, one used to be you rob your neighbor, uh, now, that's become more and more difficult uh, to do, uh, but the other four are still legit. Uh, so one is inheritance. Uh, the other three are actually what one does in one's life, uh, which is returns to knowledge uh, and education, uh, returns to capital, and returns to labor. <clears throat> and what's happening is that actually the given uh, the uh, revolution uh, or technological revolution, given globalization, the returns to knowledge and education and returns to capital have gone up, but the returns to manual labor 
have actually either not gone up or relatively speaking for sure, uh, they are declining. Uh, and so therefore, and you look at, in fact, you know, in any country, in any population, what percentage of the people actually accumulate wealth purely just returns to labor. And so therefore, that's what's <coughs> creating this growing inequality. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I mean, things just become, go from bad to worse. Uh, just as one example of when we say, you know, go from bad to worse, I look at the community in suburban Washington where we live, and we look at our neighbors and our friends. Okay, so you have, of course, you know, uh, dual career families, which means that both parents have graduate education, and the, so the quality of the schools is uh, much stronger. The quality of the home environment is that much stronger, and people, of course, have uh, plenty of money to, you know, have extra tutors and send their kids to this particular lesson and that particular lesson, and so on. And of course, all of that is it going to pay off? So it's not, you know, wealth inheritance, but in a way, it's inheritance still uh, from the social standing. Uh, of the parents and, and what it does. So I think these are uh, uh, some of the factors that I see are uh, making a situation, global level, still reason for optimism in terms of cross countries, across countries, but within countries and within <coughs> communities, uh, serious, serious, serious challenges. Thank you, Anil. Don, I hand it to you. Thank you. So um, Liz mentioned that I was uh, recruited by my publisher to do the 20th anniversary of the digital economy. I actually wrote it. Um, it's been out now for a year. And um, it was a sobering thing to look at it because uh, uh, that apparently, uh, I'm told, was the first bestseller about the web. And I was very optimistic. You know, I talked about uh, this vast age of promise. The old media was centralized, was one way, it was controlled by powerful forces. Everyone out there is a passive recipient. The new media is highly distributed. It's peer-to-peer. -peer. It's controlled by no one. It's one-to-one. -one. It's many-to-many. -many. It has this awesome neutrality, and it will be what we want it to be. So I went back and I looked at the book, and for sure lots of good stuff has happened. I don't need to review that. But I had a section, um, and, and it came up throughout the book, about the potential dark side, things that could go wrong. And I said, you know, it's possible that this wonderful peer-to-peer -peer technology will be captured by powerful forces that will get asymmetrical benefit. And that will lead to growing social inequality in society. I said, it's possible that technology will not contribute to employment, but it will be part of a growing trend towards structural unemployment uh, in society. I said, it's possible that all of our data will get captured by powerful people and we'll lose control of it and identity is the foundation of, uh, of, of, uh, of citizenship and it needs to be managed responsibly and we could end up losing our basic right to privacy. I said it's possible that governments will not use this technology to fundamentally transform the deep structure and architecture of government and open up governments to full citizen engagement. You know I talked about we could move to a new era of representative democracy that's based on a culture of public deliberation, active citizenship. I said it's possible governments will just use this stuff in cynical ways to get elected and to maintain power, and maybe even to, con to, con to contain controlled internets within their nation state, or to create a surveillance uh, society. So it went on and on, I won't go through it all, but it's kind of sobering to consider 
what's actually happened uh, today. So uh, when it comes to, uh, and, and I'll just tell you, I, I had a chat with Tim Berners-Lee recently. You know, he invented the World Wide Web. We were talking about this, and he said, you know, this wonderful peer-to-peer -peer technology got laid on top of a society that's anything but. And it's true, the digital revolution in many ways, I think has been captured. Uh, inequality, the, the, and, and uh, Anil's uh, description I think was very accurate because there's a lot of hand waving, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poor. Expressions like that are not quite accurate. But the accurate formulation in the developed world is that the 51st percentile is now going down for the first time in modern history. Throughout decades of wars, depressions, everything, that 51st percentile has always been going up and now it's not. Uh, in terms of employment, we have structural unemployment throughout the developed world, and I'm talking about that right now, and youth unemployment is huge. I'm off to Barcelona uh, tomorrow, 70% youth un unemployment. So if you're a young person graduating in Barcelona, you basically have no hope uh, of getting a job. And there's no, I can't find anyone who's got evidence that says that this is going to get better or that technology will help solve the problem. And a recent report in the UK said recent, uh, uh, about four months ago that robotics alone will wipe out 25% of the uh, UK workforce within 30 years. Now let's say they're off by half. Um, this is a big deal. It turns out that the, the whole first wave of automation was targeted at white or at blue collar work, automation, labor. Um, then we had this, this, the growth of the internet and technologies like that that enabled global outsourcing. It was good for the develop, developing world, emerging economies. Not so, not so good in terms of employment for the developed world. Um, but now you've got a new wave of technologies targeted, targeted right at the heart of knowledge work and of every aspect of the labor force. So technology, computers diagnose humans better than doctors and they dispense pharmaceuticals better than pharmacists, thank goodness, because the pharmacist almost killed me once. Um, and uh, they drive cars better than people. So the, this great debate between Uber so-called sharing economy, which is ridiculous to call Uber sharing. <laughs> it's a $45 billion service aggregator. But anyway, the debate between that and the taxi drivers, whoever wins that is a pyrrhic victory because uh, in, in within the next decade, you'll see most of those people displaced by autonomous vehicles. The Google car's gone two million miles. It's only had one accident when it was rear-ended from behind by a human. So, um, as for privacy, I run into people, Jeff Jarvis, friend, I debate him all the time, has a book called Public Parts that says, ah, get over it. We should all, transparency is not just an opportunity for institutions, it's an opportunity for people. And if we all just open the kimono and tell everybody everything, the world will be a better place, we won't cheat on our spouses and so on. This is not only naive, I think it's very, very dangerous because privacy is the foundation of a free society. And I was wrong in the book. I used the analogy of Big Brother watching you. It's more like Franz Kafka in the trial. <laughs> you know, when you're charged with something, and you don't know what the charge is, who your accuser are, uh, is, what the data is uh, uh, against you, and all of a sudden, you don't get that dream job, or you can't get across the border, or something. You know, even on government and governance. I was so inspired by the first Obama campaign 
because they engaged 35,000 communities self-organized. That brought them to power. And the next time around, I, I went to the leaders of MyBarackObama.com and I said, uh, you know, what are you going to do this time? They said, we're, we're killing it. We don't need to engage citizens. We've got big data. So they went from yes we, are, uh, yes, we can to we know you. They targeted inert people in swing states. They got elected, and then the midterm elections was the lowest youth voting probably ever, and for sure in the last 70 years. And we have a full-blown crisis of legitimacy of our democratic institutions. We're all around the world. Young people are saying, don't vote. It only encourages them. So um, I think the upshot of all of this and social inequality is right at the heart of the problem is that democratic capitalism is in deep trouble. That concerns me because I don't really know of a better system. So we, we have much to do to turn this around. And I'll just, uh, I'll just end with a quick little incident if I could. This is at Davos and I was um, on a panel called Social Inequality. Uh, well, it was actually about citizen engagement. So I described, you know, that we have a big opportunity to engage citizens. We need to do that because um, more and more there's a, uh, the legitimacy of our democratic institutions is being challenged. Look at the U.S. Congress, Exhibit A. I'm going on. I get stopped by this young guy. He's in his 20s. Um, this is a Chatham House rule, so I can't tell you who it was. But he says, uh, hold it, Don. I, 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 don't, I don't understand. I don't get your point. He says, because I was saying, if we don't fix this, we're going to have a social explosion that will make the 1960s look like kid stuff. He says, I don't, I don't get your point. Oh, by the way, did I mention he created a network called Avaz that has 34 million young people trying to organize to bring about change in the world? And he says, I don't get your point. Why is it a crisis if all around the world a whole new generation thinks that our fossilized institutions of democracy are bankrupt? And I'm like, Bob Dylan or something going on here and you don't know what it is. So you, I almost fell off my chair. And there's a whole new generation that's emerging that we told them you work hard, you stay out of uh, trouble, you be a good kid, you graduate, you can have prosperity. And that's turning out not to be true. So uh, the stakes are very, very high. Now I have some ideas on how to fix that, but I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Don. Okay, so. I think we're agreed somewhere, the, the, the pair of you are agreed that um, the, if we're looking at it from the terms of uh, um, returns on knowledge and education or we're looking at it as the um, technology grab that is in fewer people's hands and, and, and creating uh, more inequality, that there is something going on here and it, there is uh, growing inequality. Let me, let me build on what you've just said, Don, and ask the obvious, obvious question, does it matter? Because you're worried about the squeeze middle, and it's true that the middle class is reducing globally, but the fact is that's partly, certainly in China and India, and definitely in America, because more people are becoming millionaires and multiple millionaires. So you're getting a lot more people actually getting richer, although the middle's getting, getting, getting smaller around the world. So why does it matter? You're saying there's going to be a social explosion. Anil, why, why do you think it matters? Why does inequality even matter? Why do we care? I think uh, the, uh, I mean, it, it, it matters for at least, uh, let's say, two reasons for sure. So, you know, first is that uh, if you, again, let's say, you know, I stay with uh, looking at China and India. 
that actually I, I'm not, uh, obviously I'm not concerned in, from a wealth point of view about the rich. I'm also actually not particularly concerned about the middle income because the size of the middle income is growing and the income levels of the middle incomes are rising, uh, particularly because China and India are not really resource rich economies. So therefore their uh, economic development is really productivity driven and so therefore that does create lots of middle income jobs. But you know, still bulk of the population in China and India is really kind of, let's say, bottom of the pyramid, right? And that's so you, you know, and talk not just the bottom 20 percent, the bottom 50 percent, yes. right? And the the people who live in villages. And so yes, we can say as a group their wealth is rising, but it's clearly not rising at the same pace as the middle income or the higher income. Mm. And so, and the reason why this is uh, an issue is because. Ultimately, you know, social revolutions uh, are led by people uh, who see their lot uh, uh, kind of, you know, not moving up at yeah. the same pace as others in society. And, you know, they basically say, look, you know, I'm a human being and I'm no less a human being than you are. Uh, and ultimately, as we know from, you know, uh, events in France more than two centuries back and elsewhere, uh, that if uh, bulk of the population actually says we are not going to put up with it anymore, uh, that is uh, a, a national issue. It's a, it's, a, it's a big social issue. So that's number one. But the second uh, issue, uh, more from a pragmatic point of view, is that if you are uh, a President Xi or a Prime Minister Modi, uh, and you are interested in economic develop, economic growth mm -hmm. of your country, mm -hmm. uh, is that pure arithmetic tells us that to grow the GDP at 7% or 6% or 8% or 9%, uh, that if you do that only on the, 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 the basis of making the top 20% richer, mm -hmm. okay, nobody on earth has figured out how you make 20% uh, of the population uh, uh, grow richer at 40% a year, uh, so that the whole country uh, can grow at eight or nine percent. So therefore, if uh, the 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 fifty percent of the population uh, that's uh, at the let's say the, the bottom end, if <coughs> their uh, 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 wealth level, income level, mm -hmm. <coughs> if that does not rise, eventually it's going to act as a break on the economic development of the entire country. So those are at least two reasons why uh, this is uh, an issue which cannot be whitewashed away. We, we cannot turn a blind eye to it because it is going to come back and bite. Okay, so we've got social unrest, we've got social exclusion, <coughs> and we've got a lack of economic growth. Um, it, but is it capitalism's fault? So, you, you know, the, the stats from the IMF say that, yes, if you give, if you increase the wealth of the top 1%, um, uh, then it doesn't have the same impact on growth. In fact, it has a negative impact on growth. Whereas you increase the wealth of the bottom 20% by 1%, you get an increase in economic growth. So the economic growth argument is exactly right. But it's capitalism that's on trial here. Is it capitalism's fault? Shouldn't government be better at the distributing wealth? No, actually, I wouldn't put it as fundamentally capitalism's fault because that would be a little bit like saying that to be born is to be condemned to die one day. Okay, uh, uh, and so, 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 you know, it just, uh, uh, you know, because if we uh, throw capitalism out of the window, what exactly are we going to embrace? Uh, 
Uh, and in fact, I mean, just you know, to pick up on one aspect of what Don was saying, you know, which is very interesting, you know, looking at Uber, for example, right? And so, uh, and not getting into whether we should call it sharing economy or not, but we do know that in this era, uh, there are platform companies, and then of course there are players, uh, individuals or organizations that play on that platform. And that platform could be an Uber, Airbnb, or Android, or iPhone, or whatever, right? And so what happens is that actually value creation takes place uh, uh, in collaboratively between the platform companies and the players who play on that platform. Uh, but actually a huge chunk of the value gets captured by the platform uh, and by the individuals, you know, sitting in Silicon Valley and elsewhere who create those platforms. That's number one. Number two is that if you are a platform creator, it is actually sensible corporate strategy to create a platform where for the players friction would be less because that is how you create a platform with a wider usage base. And that, of course, is good for consumers. But we know from strategy that when you create relatively lower friction markets, it's going to be extremely hard for players on that platform to capture economic to value. Right. And so, so, so these are kind of things that accompany capitalism, which is what I love. So therefore, I wouldn't throw capitalism out of the window or blame capitalism, but we still have to, like, we want to live longer. Uh, and so we do need to figure out, you know, how to fix capitalism. Don, what do you think? Is capitalism yeah, the problem? Yeah, they're on trial. Capitalism's on trial. Uh, well, the current model is failing, so we need a new model. <laughs> <laughs> and and well, I can I'll elaborate. <laughs> and I think that um, <laughs> Neil is right. I mean. When it comes to social inequality, it's fundamentally a, a redistribution problem, right? So you need to have a new social contract in society where, where the largesse of the digital age is distributed differently because we have wealth creation, but we don't have growing uh, prosperity. But um, there are, there, to me, there are two new axes here that are emerging that are kind of exciting. One is rather than just redistribution, there's an opportunity to change distribution or the way that wealth is created and owned in the world. <coughs> and um, this is kind of a long story, uh, and I won't go into it, but I'll just say what the story is. Um, there's a second generation of the internet emerging. And the first uh, generation, we had peer-to-peer -peer exchange of information, but we couldn't do peer-to-peer -peer exchange of value or money. And the reason is because you need a powerful intermediary to authentic authenticate who you are and that a transaction has occurred. You know, if I send, you know, if I send uh, Rita twenty dollars, I'm sorry, what's your name? Uh, Amy. Amy. If if I send you an MP3 file and I send the same file to you, that's kind of a problem. If I send twenty pounds to you and I send the same file to you, that's a bigger problem. It's called fraud, and the whole economy doesn't work. So we need these powerful intermediaries that were sort of positioned to capture all this value. What if there were a next generation that enabled peer-to-peer -peer value exchange of wealth and the creation and ownership of wealth without powerful intermediaries? And that's occurring. And uh, it's you may be surprised to hear this. It's the underlying technology of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. It's called 
blockchain technology, and to me it's the biggest innovation in computer science in a generation. And uh, I've been saying this for a while, and The Economist just said it in the current issue. Or I, yeah, that's out on the, the cover story of the current issue of The Economist. So this opens up a whole new world. So to your point about Uber, precisely Uber, um, the corporation, you know, powered by these big VCs and Google and so on that gets asymmetrical benefit from this platform. What if the platform were a distributed application owned by the drivers? That's now totally possible and that's being built on the blockchain. So that would be one of hundreds and hundreds of use cases for this technology that can do a lot around inequality. So Annalie Domingo is a uh, Filipino um, nanny and uh, who lives in Toronto and for the last 20 years she's been taking public transit for two hours every month to the little Filipino shopping mall where there's a Western Union store where she sends her remittances, she's part of the Filipino diaspora, back to her mother. She gets charged roughly 10%, it takes four to seven days. Now Annalie, as of last month, um, goes on to her mobile phone into a digital watch at a wallet transfers the money, it costs 0.5% and it happens in a nanosecond. That's a half a trillion dollar business right there. That's a half a trillion that could be brought back into solving inequality problems in the world annually. So, uh, now don't get me wrong, I'm not a technology determinist. All we're getting here is another kick at the can. And we got another couple of decades now where we can try and do this again. Uh, and the second thing, I've talked for too long. The second thing is, uh, it's my big project and I'm just starting it, so. All I know is what all the problems are. I don't know what the answers are. It's something um, I'm doing at uh, Mark Prosperity Institute U of T, but it's called, a, it's building a new social contract for the digital age. I think I'm gonna call it a declaration of interdependence. Or something <laughs> like that. Nice. So it's a great moment to throw it open to questions because maybe you'll get some inspiration for the, some of the answers uh, in, in addition to some of the questions for your research, Don. So who would like to ask a question or make a statement of their own about um, inequality, growing, not growing. Rita, please take the mic. Fortunately, she didn't have to hit me with it. Uh, <laughs> um, there's a counter argument that, that often gets made, um, and uh, I guess William Lazard would be the, the proponent of that. I'm not sure that's how he pronounces it. But basically, his argument is that in the 70s and into the 80s, we saw a real shift in the allocation of corporate profits away from workers whose productivity has been increasing towards executives and owners. So yeah. away from labor towards the other um, sources of knowledge. And I, my own bias is that the digital revolution has probably exacerbated this. So I'd be very interested in your views on how do we get that balance back? Because I think that's part of certainly where some of this starts. Great question. I think it was J um, Jack Welch who said pursuing um, shareholder value as a strategy was the dumbest idea ever, and that's kind of what you're saying, I think, Rita. So here, here. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, I wonder what Jeff Bezos' answer would be to that. I mean, it's it's a it's it's it's, it's a. Uh, I I don't have a clue how you get it back because, you know, I mean the one of the reasons why. Uh, you know, I mean, here, it, it, a company like Amazon, right? And so, of course, you have the techies, 
But then you have the people working in the warehouses and the compensation levels are completely different. Even the employment contracts are completely different. And the vast majority of the people, now whether they are employed by Amazon or not, are actually the people working in the warehouses. Uh, and you know, one of the reasons why Amazon succeeds like crazy, and I'm not just saying succeeds for shareholders, succeeds for consumers, for customers, uh, is because of the absolutely maniacal uh, pursuit of not just, uh, I mean, of efficiency. Of course, there's innovation, but also of you know this maniacal pursuit of efficiency. And so that raises this whole challenge about you know what happens to those warehouse workers, for example, right? And then eventually it gets more and more and more robotized. You know the kind of things. You know the the impact of technology. Uh, and so therefore, firstly, they get paid a pittance, and tomorrow the jobs go away, you know? And of course, I'm not surprised if, you know, Des and uh, Stuart are planning to have a Cyberwork 50 uh, conference, you know, four <laughs> years from now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm, first of all, I agree with that, and I agree with that. Now, so, so just two questions here. Can corporations change? And um, I think it's possible actually, as part of a new social contract where they begin to understand common self-interest and having, you know, a, a business environment that's reasonable. Business can succeed in a world that's failing and ultimately you end up with people in the streets. Um, and there was this expression, you do well by doing good, you know, corporate mm -hmm. social responsibility types. I don't think that was true. <laughs> I mean, lots of companies did well by being bad, you mm -hmm. know, by being monopolies or having terrible labor practices, exploiting their um, labor in the developing world, externalizing their costs, whatever. Peter Thiel says monopolies are the way to go now. They're the engine of innovation. It's like the weirdest argument ever. But, um, <laughs> but I think that because of transparency and because of these changing realignments in society, that's starting to change. You know, and the a lot of, there are a lot of great corporate leaders, Paul Pullman at Unilever, you know, he's somebody who really gets it around big issues like climate change and who understands that corporations are pillars in society. And it may not be at the point where you do well by doing good, but we know you do badly by being bad. I mean, Wall Street almost brought down the global capitalist system. Bank of America's return on equity was, what, 22%? Before that, it's now, what, four? They don't, from a shareholder perspective, shareholder value, right? Uh, Liz, from a shareholder perspective, they don't have a right to exist because they behave badly. Mm. So I'm, I'm kind of, I might be naive, but I'm kind of hopeful that transparency and these other forces, you know, the, the expression from a book I wrote a long time ago that my mother bought most of the copies was um, that as a corporation, you're gonna be naked and there's some corollaries that flow from that. One of them is that, you know, fitness is no longer optional. Or if you're gonna be naked, you have to get buff. And um, that means that you need to have good value, but you also need to start to behave with integrity. You need good values, and if, because if you don't, you'll be unable to, uh, to build trust. Maybe starting by paying taxes can in I, some cases. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can I ask a question to, to Don? Yeah, please do, your yeah. panel, go. <clears throat> Which is that, uh, you know, I mean, I agree with the idea of, social, of a new social contract. 
as an idea. The question now is how do you go from idea to reality? Of course, you got Paul Coleman, right? But then for every Paul Coleman or every Mark Benioff, you know, the founder of Salesforce and who is, you know, kind of leading the drive in San Francisco towards uh, regional solutions to poverty, anti-poverty programs, uh, that for every Mark Benioff, you have people like Tom Perkins, right? I mean, Tom Perkins, of course, is, you know, is Kleiner Perkins, Caulfield and Pyers is a phenomenal VC, one of the godfathers of the VC world. And look at, you know, what Tom Perkins says is that he's compared attacks against the wealthy He's equated it to Nazism. Mm. And so the question now is... Obamacare is Nazism too, apparently. Right, right, right. And so, 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 so that what we have, of course, we have these ideas like new social contract, but we also have power in society. And that power in society is not distributed equally. Yeah. Mm. The power I, to cast yeah. votes is equal, but the yeah. power... Uh, to buy votes is not. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so how do you bring about change? Well, <clears throat> you know, I find myself saying this every day to a problem that someone raises. And it's like, let's put this problem in one of two categories. It's category one is reasons why this is a bad idea. Category two is implementation challenges. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to call that an implementation. Now, it's a non-trivial one. Okay, but you're gonna delegate that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but but, but here's here's what the good idea is: that when we went from agrarian to industrial economies, we we developed a new social contract. We figured some stuff out. You know, we figured people are gonna move off the land. They're gonna be in the city. They'll need a social safety net. We're gonna have to pay for that. We need income tax. We're, people need to be literate. So we're gonna create public education and mandate that everybody's gotta go to school. If we're gonna have public corporations, maybe they should tell their shareholders something once a year. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have to until 1934 with the SEC Act. Uh, you know, maybe one company shouldn't own all the oil in the world. So we developed anti-monopoly legislation. I think we're down to five companies now. <laughs> anyway, um, the problem with today, and I see uh, Eric Brynjolfsson's name is on the attendee list uh, tonight. And uh, uh, we've both been for years talking about this thing called the second half of the chessboard. And you're familiar with that, the Chinese emperor and the, uh, invited the inventor of chess in and said you can have any wish, and he said I want a single grain of rice in the first square of the chessboard, and two on the second, four on the third, and so on. And the, invent the uh, emperor granted the wish, and then a couple of days later realized he couldn't deliver because if every square inch of planet Earth was covered in rice fields, it wouldn't be enough. So we're now onto the second half of the chessboard, and we don't have the kind of time that we did during this transition mm -hmm. from agrarian feudal society to industrial capital capitalist society. We need to ex radically accelerate that process of coming uh, uh, up with some new understandings, new understandings about what are our rights, you know, about what are the principles upon which we'll run a society. Maybe if there's growing wealth but fewer jobs, maybe that means that people ought to work less. Radical communist thought. Well, no. It's called saving democratic capitalism. You know, but we need a whole new set of infrastructures for every uh, institution. We need a, a whole new kind of modus operandi for the way that we run societies. So your question is the killer question. <laughs> I'm just working on 
what's the good idea? And then, then collectively, we'll all be stuck with this implementation challenge of reinventing civilization. Question just right behind you, Rebecca, and then one back. Thanks. Um, hi, my name is Alper. Um, uh, my question is mainly to you, Don. Uh, you mentioned briefly about blockchain technology as a breakthrough technology, and for the context of our conversation, how, what's your prediction of the blockchain technology would affect the distribution of power and wealth in the future? Do you, um, would you share your ideas? Well, I'll give you the glib answer first. That, to me, the future is not to be predicted. It's something to be achieved. And uh, I have a new book coming out uh, on this topic called Blockchain Revolution, written with a brilliant 29-year-old investment banker, uh, an academic named Alex Tapscott. <laughs> no, he's not my brother. Uh, he's my son. But anyway, um, I, th the, I, I think we get another kick at the can. And we have another opportunity to forge a different future here. And I'm quite hopeful because this technology has got some real peer-to-peer -peer, uh, 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 toughness that's going to make it more difficult to capture and basically that we can now establish trust. And the trust is built into clever code and into mass collaboration. It makes it much more difficult for powerful forces to capture it. And you know, think about so-called big data. It's become new asset class. I think it's gonna be more important than previous asset classes like land or industrial plant. It's owned by a tiny handful of data frackers um, companies like Facebook and Amazon, Google, so on. And um, with the blockchain, if we, do, if we do this right, we'll all have our own personal avatar. Right now there's a virtual you of every one of you, only it's owned by these companies. What if the virtual you was owned by you and it was this avatar in a black box on the blockchain that moved around? The blockchain's a massive distributed database of everything, basically. And, it, it, and when you need to do something, it goes and gives this tiny little bit of data, all that's required. It doesn't say, log on with Facebook where you spill your entire <laughs> guts just to go get some stupid little service. And not only that, it's collecting data that you own, that you control. You can decide if you're just Jarvis, you're gonna give it all away, or maybe you decide you wanna monetize it, or maybe you decide, no, I'm a very private person, and I wanna keep my data to myself. So that would be one of many, many opportunities to, uh, for, for the value to come back to us as citizens. You can have a corporation created by 10 million people. So it's not a redistribution problem, it's a, we're distributing wealth differently. When people get to share mm -hmm. on blockchain Uber, pe drivers get to share fully in the wealth that they create. Blockchain Airbnb, call it B Airbnb. Um, it'll be owned by people who have rooms and couches uh, to rent, not by a $25 billion corporation in Silicon Valley. So I think there's an opportunity here, and it'll, but technology doesn't determine the nature of societies. People do, so it'll be up to us to seize this opportunity. That's really exciting. So the, it's, the, it's like, the, as you say, the Industrial Revolution, but this is the digital re um, revolution. You don't have to, you, it's almost like you don't, you don't fix your weaknesses, you concentrate on your strengths, so you create a whole new system, and the old one will just die. 
because you're starting with distribution, not the challenge of redistribution. That's exactly Fantastic. Right. Is it Justin? Hi. Uh, one of the problems I see with uh, capitalism is the messaging of capitalism. Like, capitalism is always known as evil guys doing something in a closed room out to get us, <laughs> in spite of the enormous amount of good that it actually does. And whereas the socialism and communism comes with a whole lot of radical solutions which have destroyed wealth beyond recognition at so many places. But for, a, for an unemployed youth in London, that one rings much more true because you know these guys are doing something bad to us. So how do you, you know, from a pure messaging perspective, how does a capitalist uh, player send out the message to, uh, to, to back the actual amount of good that it does? I mean, my take would be, I don't think it's a messaging problem <coughs> because, <coughs> excuse me, is that, you know, let's uh, take another interpretation of capitalism. So it's not, you know, kind of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the fat cats and the robbers, uh, uh, but you know, the, another interpretation of capitalism, uh, perhaps a good one, uh, will be really the elimination of friction, uh, the logic of markets, uh, and so on. But the, even under that messaging, uh, I think my point about what's happening to returns to capital, returns to knowledge and education versus returns to labor, and the reason why we have these differential returns uh, is actually because of the good aspects of capitalism. So in some sense, it's almost like that, you know, to be born is great, but to be born is also to be condemned to die. And so therefore, the problem isn't the messaging of why you are born, uh, but the problem has to do with some of the, the side effects that accompany uh, even the good message of capitalism. Uh, and so, you know, we could, I, I don't think messaging is really the issue. I think it's, you know, like the, the kinds of things that Don was talking about, really uh, uh, trying to figure out some fixes to capitalism, I think. Uh, what about philanthropy? Anil, what do you think about that as a role of not just messaging, but really acting yeah. for the common good? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, so, 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 uh, and, and in fact, you know, the way I look at it is that, so how does one begin to, to address these challenges, right? And, and I agree with you know, Don's point of view that uh, maybe uh, rethinking social contracts, uh, and it could be that social revolution forces us. I mean, you know, and it's just like the economic revolution called the Great Depression forced a, a lot of uh, uh, redesign of uh, regulations and economic systems, and so, so, so that's possible. But within that broader context, uh, I see you know, a role for individuals, uh, I see a role for corporate strategy, and I see a role for public policy. Uh, and at the level of individuals is you know, to pick up on Liz's question about really you know, what one might say philanthrocapitalism. Uh, it's like what Bill and Melinda Gates are doing. Uh, they are not doing that under the umbrella of Microsoft. That's really in their own personal capacity. Mm. Or what Mark Benioff is doing, or what Warren Buffett, you know, to give, give away all of his wealth. Uh, and so, yes, uh, there is a significant uh, role to that. Uh, there is a significant role to corporate strategy. Uh, 
you know, in terms of how exactly does one think about uh, corporate strategy? And it's like, of course, you know, Deepa and Gayatri are in the room, and C.K. Prahlad talked about bottom of the pyramid, and he didn't talk about bottom of the pyramid uh, from a do-gooder perspective, but really in terms of what smart corporate strategy perspective. So there is a role for corporate uh, strategy, but also there is a role for public policy. Uh, for example, just among many things, tax policy, and you know, it's for no reason, uh, that it's not without reason that Warren Buffett, you know, he talked about that, look, you know, his own federal tax rate is lower uh, than that of uh, the 20 people that work uh, for him. Uh, and so therefore, is there a role for rethinking tax policy? So I think uh, those are some of the fixes uh, uh, that might play a role. Absolutely, other questions? Yuri. Thanks, so a uh, good conversation. Um, I wonder how we can avoid that incumbents will co-opt the blockchain question for Don, that will eradicate some of its benefits, uh, meaning efficiency, eff effectiveness, speed, no corruption, no fraud, no privacy, etc., etc., etc. So how do we navigate this tension? Uh, for example, R3, 25 of the largest banks, so you know, I believe in the pure blockchain, not the co-opted one. What do, you, what do you think? How can we navigate this space? With great determination. <laughs> You know, um, R3 is a consortium of 22 banks that think the blockchain is the best damn thing to ever happen to financial <laughs> services. Because right now you have this Rube Goldbergian system where you tap your thing in Starbucks and then it takes three days for that transaction to go through seven systems, including 1970s mainframes, <laughs> to get mm -hmm. settled. Um, somewhere. Well, what if we're all just looking at the same distributed database? You tap your thing, the settlement is instant. So they're trying to create what's called a permissioned um, blockchain where everybody knows who everybody is, or at least the central uh, authorities, being the big banks, all know who everybody is. And, and it's just a sort of repeat of the f first round. Um, there's a very strong movement to create something very different. And Western Union's gonna have a tough time using the blockchain. They'll try to make remittances simpler, but Abra, they'll never get down to what Abra can do today and do uh, Annalise transactions for half a percent. So this, I think, is an historic battle that's kind of shaping up between the forces who wanna build a truly prosperous, egalitarian, open society and the, inc the incumbents and those who want to use a, a wonderful, brilliant technology revolution to reinforce power yeah. uh, and the status quo. And uh, man, it's going to be one interesting time in uh, history. Because yeah, you're right, uh, Goldman Sachs and others are very interested in, uh, in blockchain, aren't they? So I think um, Go. Well, I was just going to say, uh, 2020, Money 2020 happened last week in Vegas, the big financial services conference. I wasn't there. Uh, my son was, and he said there was a lot of you know, buzz. This is the big issue. Um, ben Losky was the superintendent of financial services in New York. Uh, he's the guy who sued the bank for $8 billion, the banks for $8 billion, the most powerful <laughs> regulator in the world. He quit his job a year ago because he got into this and said in five to 10 years, the financial services industry will be unrecognizable, and I want to be part of that. Mm -hmm. So 
It's an amazing thing that she's been up. We can take one last question for the back, then we're going to wrap up. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm the only one who doesn't quite get blockchain here, but um, <laughs> um, technically don't get it. Um, can you, uh, you gave a good example of the Filipino remittance, but can you give another example or explanation of what, how will blockchain revolutionize peer-to-peer -peer and inequality and these things? Well, it, it is a bigger conversation. I'm here all day and tonight, too. Happy to <laughs> talk. But I'll, I'll, I'll give you another one. 70% of the people who own a little piece of land or house in the world, have um, that ownership is vulnerable. So you get a dictator who comes into some country, and he says, I don't care if you have a certificate. Our central government computer says you don't own the land. My friend does. Mm. 70% of land in the world. Well, Honduras is now using a company called Factum, progressive government there, to put all land registries on this blockchain. It's an uncorruptible database. And uh, no tin pot dictator is gonna be able to change the fact that that is there and you own that land. So this is a, a database where you could record almost anything who owns what land, who transferred what stock to whom, oops, is that called a stock market? Of um, who did what uh, transaction, of what light auction power from what source. You can't, with trillions and trillions of internet of things, transactions going on in an hour. <laughs> Lights, trying to find the best power source. You can't have a central settlement mechanism you need to have a distributed uh, database where that light has a reputation, a power source, will only sell it power if it knows the light's gonna pay for the, the power. So think about anything where there's a record of something. Uh, I think the economists called it the, the great, uh, the great of, uh, fountain of what is true or something like that. Truth, there's a real role for truth, mm. you know, and truth is the foundation of trust. And trust is built into the code. So this is a long story. A blockchain revolution available in bookstores everywhere in April. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on that note, I'm going to uh, summarize and thank the panelists. So uh, is capitalism at fault? I think we've concluded that uh, it may not be the sole um, uh, uh, villain in terms of creating inequality in the world, but inequality in the world matters and capitalism's role certainly needs to change. So what can we do? Um, and it's like anything else, there's no silver bullet, right? So one thing is rebalance the power away from executives with their um, sometimes exorbitant pay and uh, spread betting shareholders and give more returns from their, uh, more rents from their labor back to labor. Um, I don't think it's about messaging. I think it's about really being good. So if you're a corporate, pay your taxes, pay <laughs> your people a living wage and don't overpay your executives. Um, start again is the other is the other message here. Um, and blockchain is like to me in my head. I think of it as John Lewis on speed. Okay, because it's joint ownership and everyone knows everything. As you say, the basis for for uh, trust again. And actually, our, philanthrop our philanthropic role models around the world, like the Gates Foundation and like Warren Buffett, are good role models for maybe for how capitalism should be. On that note, I'd like you to thank our panelists very much for their That's ideas and thoughts. Thank you.